Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. You're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs, the only podcast in the world where you get to hear some of your favorite bands speak about the jobs they've had before the band, during the band, but not only that, but the general survival methods of getting through being an artist in a society that doesn't exactly make it easy to do so. Jamie from Tiger Cub joins us on today's episode. They've just released their second album, their first in five years, after a long break away, as Blue as Indigo came out on the 18th of this month. It's massive sounding, it's huge. I've been loving listening to it over the last week, and I'm glad that Jamie was up for doing this, because I think he got the concept of this show. Not everyone does, you know, and he went straight for it. So cheers, Jamie. Thank you for doing this. Thanks, James Parrish, for enabling it. And thank you for listening. This is episode 109. Loads to track back to one with Daniel P. Carter, who hosted Tiger Cub for a session on Sunday night on his BBC Radio 1 rock show. If you haven't listened to that, go and listen to that because it sounds absolutely mega. East London Signature Brew have been making beers with bands since 2011. They've made beers with Mastodon, Idols, Sports Team, Hot Chip, 
and a whole lot more if you go onto their website signaturebrew.co.uk and make an order there to get beers delivered directly to your house. You can get 10% off your order by using the voucher code 101podcast, all capitals. All right, cheers again for listening. Here's Jamie from Tiger Cub. Go well. Cheers! I mean, you must have had the thing where, you know, everything's go and the excitement really takes hold of you. It's quite easy to kind of drop everything else. Yeah, totally. You mean like with respect to like getting gigs and all of that business, like saying yes to everything? Totally. That yeah. Exactly that. Yeah. I mean, what's Man, your story with that? That, uh, that is just such a like young, feisty musician trope, isn't it? I'm, I was talking yeah. to my mate Kieran about that the other day because he was getting... He was getting like annoyed because his band wanted to go and play like Essex or whatever for like for no reason basically, and it was like we're talking about how you almost have these um, these like gig tokens that you have to cash in. So it's like, (laughs) all right, well, if I make the sacrifice and cancel work and go up to do this gig, like there's only so many times I can actually do that before. So, like, do you really want to cash that token in on this gig or is it better to wait until we get a support room with a big band where they want us to go and play in Glasgow 50 quid and we're all going to lose money? It would be better to save your energy for that almost. And that was me and him talking as, like, you know, clapped out over the hill cynics. You know, we obviously, (laughs) when we were younger, I would have done that in a heartbeat, you know. So, yeah, I I know exactly what you mean, dude. Is that FOMO as well? And I I feel like you kind of... You know, that's that's perfect to describe it. Those kind of tokens, isn't it? Because yeah. it's like, well, if I do this, then I can do something. We maybe we can do something else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I always the FOMO is so true. I'm, I'd always have this image in my head of like, oh, but what if like Sony A and R travels all the way up to Doncaster yeah. to see us? And this is the time <laughs> where it happens. Never in a million years. I mean, you could do probably a thousand shows in London, and that probably wouldn't happen. And yeah. There's no guarantee that the fucker would even... Are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Well, I've done it now, haven't I? Shit, There's no guarantee. Gone. Yeah, shit, good. <laughs> Fuck off. Um, no guarantee that, you know, they'd even sign you in the first place. So, yeah, it, there's a there's a logic to it, you mm. know? We, uh, we read about stories, though, don't you? I mean, some of our friends' bands had A&R people come, but then I think that's sort of the early, mid-2000s, the noughties. Yeah, yeah. As my when I was first started Tiger Cub and stuff, as we started to branch out and stuff, we had a lot of A and R people walk out of our gigs. <laughs> walk like, out? Oh. Yeah, we like, oh, there's uh, okay. So you got like Phil Christie from All Brothers coming tonight, and you're like second yeah. song in. You're like, oh, and there he goes. <laughs> no way, you, you saw it happen. Oh yeah, totally, man. I mean, wow. it was kind of yeah, it was it was upsetting at the time. But, mm. you know, as you get a bit older, you start to think, well, it gave me a bit of a thick skin. And it starts right. to calm you down. You start to become a little bit more, not cynical, but just, you know, it's not your first row day anymore. And you can look at things <laughs> a little bit more objectively and go, hmm, what's the size of this opportunity relative to the yeah. time and money expenditure that it's going to cause? you know that's it and and that kind of risk that kind of compromise of of making that travel or like or you know pissing off your boss or whatever's at home all that stuff yeah exactly man it's it's all sacrifice so it's like yeah minimizing the damage (laughs) have you feel like you kind of leveled out with that sort of stuff do you feel like you're quite like reasoned 
I would like to think so, man. Um, you know, there's times where you get really excited about stuff and um, you let your, like, get indulgent with things and you know mm. you're kind of feeding yourself a bit of a lie but you just want to buy into it. Sometimes you need to have those, like, victories. But mm-hmm. for the most part, I'd like to think now I have high hopes but low expectations. Do you know what I mean? Just like totally. yeah, yeah. Just tr- it's just being sensible and boring about it. Um because you know there's so much promise in music if you have a life in music like oh this contract might go through, oh this person might take you on tour, oh this person really likes what you're doing and mm-hmm. I've just I've been through that mill so many times where it's it hasn't happened and you got really excited and you decided that you know, this hypothetical thing that I'm talking about, say a record deal or something's going to happen, you've told all your friends and then the fucker falls through, you feel like an idiot, go through that enough times and you just start to think, like now at least I think, like, you know, if there's an American tour or something like that, I'm like, until my feet touch American soil, it's not happening. Do you know what I mean? Even if the flights are booked, it's like you just sort of reserve your um, enthusiasm, I guess, out of self-preservation. If that makes Does any that, sense, yeah, totally. Does that like play into a lack, a potential lack of preparation, though? Because obviously, you don't want to think too much about it. But I wonder if, in doing that, the, I mean, because I've done the same thing. That's what I'm saying. I, yeah, I've done that yeah. thing where I've been like, I haven't thought about it, and I've got there, and I'll be like, oh shit! All right, what, what now? <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck! Yeah, it's actually happening now. Yeah, no, I know, I know what you mean. Um, well, with with something like a tour or whatever, yeah, that you do just hit these like these checkpoints where like right, well, we've got a, we now have to spend money on hotels and there's now a deposit up for grabs. So I guess like mm. yeah, those things do come into play because obviously you mm. can't you can't just do a gig somewhere and not have somewhere to stay and stuff. You do need the necessary mm. um, like things in in place with that respect so like maybe touring's like a bad example maybe more so of like support tours and stuff and the promise of it but definitely with record Mm. deals i'm like until that thing is totally signed and delivered it has not happened and it probably won't do you know what i mean which is it's dead cynical but it's fascinating how it's almost kind of pitched to you it's almost floated as this linear journey where it's anything but yeah yeah it's so true yeah how have you managed to to stay afloat? What have you done that you that you've been able to play music? I mean, have you been playing music for you know as a kind of you know more hours in the week than working any other job for a few years? Yeah, I I've been totally like lifer, ride or die, fucking you know, just this is what I have to do this for the last mm-hmm. like. 10 15 years i guess of it's fortunate wow. in many ways because it's a bit of a gift to have as be single-minded about things and go this is it this is what i have to do is what i want to do is my passion that mm. is that is a that's a good thing but it's also you know comes with its share of sacrifices like i mentioned earlier so yeah i've been like i made a lot of sacrifices in my life to do what i love um and express myself creatively and i guess semi-commercially um so yeah i'm probably one of, a, of many people that have just been like cobbling together, you know, little side hustles and stuff that yeah. will then give you the benefits of having enough time to focus on like just getting better at writing songs. Cause I do, That's I it. do firmly believe like it is a matter of just rinse and repeat doing it over and over again. 
especially with songwriting, you know, mm. well, like mm. anything, this practice makes perfect, doesn't it? And the, and the best people, like the, my outlook on it is even if you are the best ever in the world, that doesn't guarantee you a bloody career in it. You know what I mean? That's almost like yeah. the bare minimum is to be sick. Um, and that, yeah. and yeah. then it's like a bit of a roll of the dice. So even to get to the starting grid. So yeah, I've mm. just got a real checkered, like, job history of just <laughs> like yeah things here and there just trying to cobble together a little bit of money and basically any standouts um bloody hell uh well let me think when i first moved to brighton from sunderland because that's where i was brought up originally my accent mm-hmm. floats in and out um right. i know um but yeah I, I like the main way i earned money when i was younger was through playing in like pub bands and cover bands because there's a huge right. culture for it up north. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like when I was like living at my mom's and stuff, I was able to earn like quite good money, especially with no overhead. So I could like save up and buy guitar amps and stuff and just pit, just piss it away. And then when I came <laughs> down to Brighton, I uh, I went to university, so I had a maintenance loan, and I played in this cover band <laughs> called Tripod Dave. Um, <laughs> And like, I have no idea why it's called that. I'm really tall as well. I'm seven foot tall. I've always been like around about that height. So whenever I would play, like pub dwellers would be like, are you tripod? I'd be like, I think so. I think, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe that's what this is. It was cool though. Cause you can get like a hundred quid a night. And if you tack enough of those together in a month, that's yeah. about what you'd earn slaving away at a bar. But for a lot less so that was quite a good little that was a good thing for a while even though it was a bit weird i feel like those those jobs they do exist because i remember being 18 19 and being like i don't know what i can do (laughs) and then those things kind (laughs) of find you in the end don't they yeah it's so true isn't it yeah um yeah but brian's an expensive city as well it's well expensive um you can you can slum it, but there's the basic cost of living. So it's like London, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was always it was always quite difficult. Um, but after a while, I don't know about you, but you just you get used to living on the breadline. And you know, I remember uh-huh. like pride of myself on being able to go to like the big Sainsburys with like handful of like two pence coins and stuff, like three pound and two pence coins, and being like, I can get bread. I can get like sausages, fucking. I um, don't eat meat anymore, but jeez, would would that even be meat? The fucking Sainsbury's basic sausages <laughs> is that meat, no. or is it no. just sawdust and like <laughs> fucking yeah, yeah. bumholes? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, did you have you, yeah. did you find yourself any any other little sort of like tricks that kind of kept you going? Yeah, I did actually. In preparation for this pod, I did a little list <laughs> of things because I was like, I bet it's better to just write them down quickly so I'm not going like, uh, um, think about Smart it. man. That's yeah, yeah. It. yeah, so I'd have like normal jobs, like bar jobs and stuff. But also my mate Andrew, like he started selling Harrington jackets. He'd buy them in wholesale and he'd shift them. He'd make a really good profit. And I copied that idea from him basically. And I found a place where I could get really cheap Levi's jackets buy it on weight and then i could sell them for like get a third markup on it so i would sort of do that as a little bit of a hustle and obviously that's not guaranteed income so that would just be like whenever i could sell them so sometimes i'd be like oh fucking sick i've got loads of money this this month or other times i'd be like no fuck what am i gonna do direct Um, competition to dirty harry's 
Well, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know how much people spend in there, or all of those places. Man, it's insane. I was in there, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, getting some clothes for like a music video or whatever. Dirty Arrows is a bad place to go because you've got no returns policy, so you've got to commit oh, really? to the garments that you're buying. Good, good clobber, yeah. though. But at the same time, I was just like, you know, I was like, fucking hell, it's 40 quid for like an old 2005, like, Duffy's like khaki pants it's like this is a fucking crazy markup and people you know people buy it so you know it's it's cool i i I get it um i'm way too tight to shop at (laughs) places like that these days that's hilarious about bulk buying those jackets though and and yeah that's that's amazing that's yeah yeah no that was cool i bailed me out a little bit from time to time um when i'd overspent um and then like i worked at a print factory for a while that was horrible i was basically like the the bitch that had to like just clean up and unravel these weird like felt fucking cylinders i didn't even know what i was doing but it was just it was just like <laughs> it was shit shit work and that was for like billboards and stuff like that for a while so i've just got a really like checkered patchwork like job history and then obviously when the band starts touring and stuff you like you you know you'd start living off whatever you can whatever you get fed at the venue and stuff which is sick for saying for staying skinny i mean did that did that stuff change when like when things kicked off uh for abstract figures in the dark yeah and then you know things were things were turned up a gear were they quite a bit when that happened i guess so yeah like i i think on that album people started to see us as like not just a Nirvana cover band. Cause I think that was a predominant gut feeling amongst people, maybe more industry facing and like listener facing. But I feel like we'd traversed that like preconception a little bit and just releasing an album, man, it's, it's just such a, it's quite a profound thing to do. And it's a, mm. there's a tangible cha- shift in gears when you do actually release a record on a label. Um, mm. and it, people just are more interested in that, I guess. And I think we did a good job, like tracking the thing and it sounded good and songs were, I think were a step up and re- this is retrospectively, of course, cause at the time you just don't know, but listening to it back now, I'm like, oh yeah, I think a lot of the songwriting there is quite sound. So yeah, man, it was really cool. We got a booking agent and all the team started to sort of build up around us. So we'd be getting the gigs and, People will be turning up at the shows and be getting on support tours and different bits and bobs. Was there like a, a self-reflection there where you thought, you know, did it become a bit more serious? I mean, what was your vibe with that? I think, you know, between me, me, Jalex, the drummer and Jim, the bass player, we're always dead serious about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, would were keen for it to be the thing that like, I guess, would define our characters as people as something that's like really important that we're, that we're doing and we want to be like known for. So it's always been dead serious and trying to make as many moves as we can to put ourselves in the best position possible. But when the record came out, that just felt like all of that stuff was vindicated and it was kind of like big boys time. So we were like, Oh shit, we're kind of, you know, cooking with gas now. And like people, we're not just sort of pretending to be in a band. Like people think we're a band, we're a real band now. So we're going to do the things. Did the three of you had that have that conversation about you know prioritizing that over? Well, I mean, I know you said you all take it really seriously, but you know, with you having like a, a, a patchy jobs here and there, was it a similar mm. 
situation for the other two as well? Um, not so much. So Jimmy, the bass player, um, he has always worked at this studio in Brighton called Brighton Electric. Um, and he's been like such a, um, just important cog in that, like just that place that he's for himself, like a salary and stuff like that. And just has more of an institutionalized, um, set up there. And obviously I'm like, I'm speaking on behalf of me. So sorry, Jim, if I get any of this wrong, but um, it, he, he just had a really neat little setup because the, him being in a band and being like kind of literate with studio terms and different things like that, that all kind of plays into his professional like career as well as like just being a pisshead in a band with us. So he could convince his boss to let him go away and come back. And I think because he was able to like organize the rotor and stuff like that, he could, he could move it to his benefit and we'd all we'd all discuss things that have come down the pipeline like this gig that gig and we just like figure out whether we could actually make it happen and it's a similar thing with Jalex as well he's a he worked as a bar manager at Green Door for quite a long time right Green Door Store pub in yeah yeah. right and and, um because he's manager he, he worked the the rotor as well um so I, and i was working there for a bit so he was like my manager so we could both kind of we could chat and you know after mm. work and say right well we you know we want to do um whatever this support to has come through they want to take us out to europe can we afford it we can bang ourselves on the rotor shit ton before the tour so we can save up the cash and then we go out so there was like give a bit of give and take um with that. I find both those things really interesting because working at a studio and then working at a venue, these yeah. are both jobs that legitimize the music industry and playing in a band. And I yeah. think that is, I think that must, must be so important because that kind of self-reflection of taking yourself serious. I mean, it's like the number one thing that bands break up because people just can't afford it and yeah, you know, cult- culturally or financially. And yeah. I think that when, when you're already working within the music industry in those sorts of jobs where, you know, really those are two of the main jobs that, keep the music industry turning yeah yeah you can see how how important it is and how they're how they're gonna you know have that a good head on their shoulders for it i think you're right because it's a it's immersion isn't it because the Mm -hmm. what you're doing at the bar is we're setting up we're setting up the venue for the gig and then the djs come and we're we're helping you're part of it yeah facilitate that and then obviously jim's facilitating rehearsals and help and book the studio yeah. so you yeah, are just yeah. living it that said yeah. that does that's not to say there's not fucking fireworks and rows and uh, <laughs> conflicts right. of interest and shit like yeah. that when you have to do yeah. the the mad shit you know yeah like yeah. Yeah. going on tour for four weeks in europe and stuff like you know it's still it gets dicey because mm. there's a it, you know you're still rolling the dice but it each time, the fur, the longer you go out and the, the bigger the commitment, you up the ante on, you know, whether it might affect where you're at in your job and different things like that. So, I mean, that that's that's both the both the lads like have been pretty fixed in those jobs for quite a long time, whereas I've always, yeah, like I say, skitted around and was on the dole for like about a year and a half and then worked at Green Door for a bit. And I've always just been sort of trying to like yeah just make make it happen and and just avoid being homeless because i just sort of i'd admit it to myself like i'm gonna be a musician i'm probably gonna be like a tramp of some sort and it's worth it 
not to say that those lads don't think the same, but just, you know, just speaking on behalf of myself purely, I was like, fuck it. I just think ride or die, just risk it, risk it and just get, go out there, just make a big swing and you run the risk of falling flat on your face. You know, you don't pay any national insurance for six years. You got gaps in your pension and stuff like all real Mm. dangerous shit, but the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is, is worth it. And it feels like where I'm at now in my career, it feels like there's like legitimate, like there's a legitimate chance that I can be reimbursed for all of that bullshittery throughout my twenties now. And I kind of feel lucky that I did stick at it in a, in a lot of ways because things feel, you know, it's never safe, but things are just a little bit more stable and a little bit more tangible now. And like you can say things like, you know, we're going to get an advance. Mm. Uh, after mm. recording costs and like everyone's mm-hmm. keeping a straight face while they're saying it do you know what i mean you're like fucking <laughs> hell this is real it's like a real band old school uh-huh. must have been sick in the 90s that's one thing i get sad about sometimes like i hit like chat to my mate um my mate Founzy from uh 80s matchbox beeline disaster obviously they're not a band from the 90s but they were going in that like heyday where like cd sales the lot I know bands still got paid fuck all because the wealth is never distributed. But, um, you know, he's told me some things about the band and just, just like, <laughs> it just, it would never happen. A band like that, I just don't think could ever exist nowadays, you know, because they're so chaotic and so many people believed in the band and wanted it to succeed despite, um, you know, them at times it seems acting on acting against their self-interests fucking hell i've just been talking for like 10 minutes straight there i think jesus christ i feel like i've just come out of a fugue state <laughs> <laughs> when you when you took a step back from it i mean was did any of that change for you did any of that kind of you know the way you were thinking about the band you know and and then going on to do your own solo thing nancy yeah. i mean how when you look back at that time now i mean what was going through your head um I just, I hit like, I think collectively as a band, we hit like a, a point of fatigue around like 20, the end of 2017. Cause we just had our foot on the gas for like three, four years solidly. Just mm. like, what's next? Oh shit. What's next? Right. In the studio, right back out on tour. Right. We're selling this. We're selling this. And mm. I felt like our fan base, um, I felt like they were getting fatigued at the same time because we kept going like, now buy a vinyl. Now we've made a beer with Signature Brew. Buy that. Buy these gig tickets. Buy these t-shirts because we're just desperately trying to get ourselves just out of that like sort of localized class of bands and into that, you know, middle class of bands, if you will. You know what I mean? Where you kind of, you've tipped a little bit. There's there's enough of a fan base that like it, it sort of ticks over and you're just, you're a bit more established. So we're racing to that checkpoint. Um, cause we booked these two, two massive gigs, one in Brighton at Concord two, which is about 600 tickets, one in London, which is about fucking thousand tickets. And we were like, they're way bigger than we can sell. But if we just gas it and we fucking gun it for everything we got at it, we can shift the tickets. I know we can. And people will just see us as a bigger band and like it worked, but the, the price of that at the end was fucking immense fatigue and like, holy shit, what do we do next? I don't think I can even fucking thinking about think about writing another record let alone you know anything else and alongside that there was a lot of contractual shit that we were 
trying to deal with. Like at the same time as trying to step the band up in bigger venues, we're between us and our management, we're trying to get the band just more resources, not more money for us to spend, just like more like more than four thousand pounds to make an album deliver an album which is like four grand's a lot of money but to make a record with that is that is a tight budget you know what i mean it's still a lot of faves and stuff so we're just trying to get the band raise the band's equity do you know what i mean yeah. it's a very yeah, like yeah. it's a bit of a mercenary way of putting it but raise the band's equity and just try and get some more fucking resources so between the culmination of like fatigue resources and diff- different things like a couple of internal things between like me and the boys, just because we've been together in the back of the van and the fucking pressure cooker of being an independent band for so long. It just felt right to take a couple of months out and then a couple of months turned into fucking three years and I ended up doing Nancy. Um, so like I didn't take a break at all. I just had a different creative out- outlet for a while. You know? And were you writing songs different? I mean, obviously we're writing songs differently, but I mean, how differently when it comes to coming back to, ti- to Tiger Cub, you know, how, did your songwriting change? Yeah. Yeah, it did massively. Um, we had a, we were on a bit of a journey when we were creatively after Abstract Figures in the Dark. We went into this EP that was really for us, quite experimental. We're using keyboards and synths and drum machines and stuff yeah. that we didn't really know how to play. As a deliberate attempt to just try and break ourselves out of that alt rock um, cliche, because um, yeah. you, you, there's a there's a cycle that some, some bands can fall into where you sort of keep trying to rewrite the same classic alt rock record over and over again. It just feels like that can really stunt bands, and I, I just was dead keen to try and break out of that and give people a reason to come back and listen to us even if they're going fucking hell that's shite but just not 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 be mediocre and not like tread water evolve or die yeah did you think of it as an ep i mean how how much were you trying to shake things up for yourself Uh, yeah it's a weird one right because trying to trying to write something within like a body of work that's across 15 minutes. It's quite hard to have a succinct, well-rounded statement. So it's almost not worth doing. And I think with Evolve or Die, that almost should have been a record because I just didn't feel like there was enough time to, um, you know, cross the T's and dot the lowercase J's on (laughs) some of the ideas that we were having. So it kind of feels disjointed. But that yeah. said, I think it it did hey, it sounds great. serve as a oh thanks man I appreciate that I'm dead like um, anxious about it because I got tagged in loads of really rotten reviews of it so I like I buy into that a little bit I'll get over it don't worry I'll be fine don't worry about me <laughs> um, anyway it blew the fucking doors open because we didn't see ourselves as like Nirvana drums bass and guitar screaming vocals anymore we were like let's just do whatever we fucking can and make the best song possible and I think that like mentality followed through into Nancy and that allowed me to be comfortable doing Nancy and being like yeah I like the White Album I can do songs like that it doesn't all have to be like minor and angsty yeah. and sad yeah. I can I can play with this other whole other side of music that I love like T-Rex mm. and all that business Um, and I was cautious to keep Nancy stylistically separate to what Tiger Cub's doing, just so I'm not like cannibalizing what Tiger Cub's about by doing Right, and that's going to be a risk. That's going to be a real risk, isn't it? Yeah, man. Yeah. So, I mean, at the start of Nancy, it was, it was, it was faceless and nameless. 
uh, with regards to me for the first like I'd say yeah. 18 months um and then ticket sales were flat so i was like oh shit okay fucking let's let's get a fucking mailer out and uh try and get some tc fans down um but no that was that was really great nancy being totally anonymous and genderless as well Mm. to start with it was a really fun little experiment um just write writing music and, and having it like judged purely on its merits as opposed to any kind of like subtext or context surrounding it like oh it's his side project you right, know so right. uh, that yeah, that was yeah. quite fun and then you know that all feeds into as blue as indigo as well and i think it's a bit of a journey i guess it's cliche but it was a bit of a journey and then you come back full stir- circle and you readdress like um excuse me i readdress like what the fuck is tiger cub about you know and mm, look mm. back on it with having sort of done rounds with all different styles i guess and you can actually- that must feel really nice to be like what is type about because quite often you almost feel like you don't have that yeah chance to ask yourself that question oh totally man totally it was good to have time to leave it alone and almost get sort of bored and mm. find the initiative to do something wicked rather than just trying to write songs because you've got a studio booked at this on this date and stuff so the mentality was different and it was nice man and it, it felt like it felt like there was even though Tiger Cub is a small band but like there was enough interest in the band that the people that liked Tiger Cub had taken ownership in it and it was they knew what Tiger Cub was so you can kind of look to look to that a little bit more and I basically just thought instead of doing like techno music just have a couple more riffs in and that'll do the job on it do you know what I mean yeah and he started recording it right at the start of lockdown I mean once you wrapped it up I mean what 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 was the rest of lockdown for you like I mean were you able to sort of practice and rehearse or even you know hang out and think about plans and um it was, it was lockdown was really busy I mean, I was supposed to go to America um, and then that got cancelled. I was supposed to go on tour with Nancy and stuff and that got cancelled as well. Nancy was doing like, I was getting nervous about Nancy because he was doing better than I thought he would. I, I thought like, oh, I'd fucking, I'll get a play on Radio 1 and we'll all be popping champagne co- corks and high-fiving each other. And then it was like fucking doing really well, legitimately well, getting contracts and fucking going out wow. to America, doing South by and shit like that. Anyway, so I was sort of on, still on the momentum of that going into the Tiger Cup record. And then, yeah, lockdown hit. And I already had um, studio time booked to do a Nancy EP after the Tiger Cup record. So um, luckily, like, because the studio was like, it was closed. So there's no one there. But because Jimmy runs the place and he he knows me, obviously, he's like, yeah, well, we can get you in there um, because there's no one else there and you can can work still and and do shit and then like there was a big like crisis with the records we had like disagreements with our like producer engineer aid unfortunately and then we parted ways with him and then i was going to mix the record for a bit and i sort of mixed it and got what kind of disagreements were they can i ask um were they just sort of i mean obviously about I mean, how, how, I don't know. I was, I always find that fascinating. Like, yeah. was it a personality clash more than a, yeah. 
Yeah, I've okay. never, I've never, I've tried to avoid talking about it just because, you know, I don't want to. <laughs> it's personal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but okay, I'm so enjoying myself a little bit here, so I'm just, yeah, rattling it off. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a personality clash, let's say that. Right. It was explosive, explosive personality clash. Right. Um, and, and, yeah, disagreement. But it was all passion, do you know what I mean? So yeah. when I look back yeah. on it, I think, well, he just wanted, he saw it his way intensely and he was willing to fight intensely for that vision that he had you know um and i think there was a lot of nerves with with me and the rest of the band just about how long it's been since we've gone away and the reality that if this record comes back and it it flops what does that mean for the band you know right. that yeah there's yeah. an existential element to that yeah um, totally so we totally. have to come back strong so that was kind of stressful so yeah that was fucking it was an insane period of my life man i was so stressed i started getting retinal migraines so like my vision would crack and then i would have to just fucking go home lie down and wait for the migraine to pass yeah it was, That's I, I was insane i was freaking out about it right and i was ringing up my gp and stuff and they're like dude's fine you know there's nothing mental going on you're just really stressed you need a holiday um wow. so yeah it was it was a crazy crazy time in my life the band sort of imploded and then we all got back together it was it's fucked up man um mad, so mad. yeah and then on top of that i have like i had commitments with nancy so i was shooting music videos in the studio fucking you know i had a gig booked in december just in between the the lockdowns where gigs were allowed to happen i had that sort of working towards so it's really i just have had no time to to properly take stock to be honest but i was grateful that the band had the free uh, gap because i was able to just write like a thousand songs for it and be like ah, oh, what what do i want this to be what should it be um and i was able to yeah explore stuff a bit more anyway you got you got to write about real things and i th- i feel like yeah. it's, it's quite often the case that an artist or a group have been doing something so long that you just get into a routine of, and then that sort of dilutes it in a way. I mean, you know, mm. that's, that's a pretty sweeping statement, but I can, <laughs> oh, you're right. it's happened to me, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's good that, that time to fucking reassess. It is man. It is to get bored and get the, yeah, get the hunger back for it. Cause if you're bored, then you're going to do something that's exciting. You want to excite yourself, don't you? That's probably going to exactly, be exciting man. in general. Man, it's just reminded me of something, right? I was watching this interview with Kevin Parker from Tame Impala with Zane Lowe yeah. around the, when their last album came out. And he was saying, like, he was he was trying to write this new record and he was sat in this, like, lavish, like, all-windowed mansion on this bay in Perth or whatever, looking out on just, like, rolling hills, beautiful sunsets into the sea and stuff. And he was like, that was really bad because I could just play like an E chord for like two hours and it would sound fucking beautiful <laughs> because my environment was wicked. And he was like, yeah. actually, when I was in Paris in a shithole, I'd have to work harder to make the yeah. chords sound better and the, and the music work so they could transcend my fucking environment that I was in. And, and you know what I mean? I think there's I something that. in I that. that. It's loosely related to what I was saying <laughs> just shoehorning in yeah well if, you, if you're bored and you've got to like make something exciting like that's naturally gonna i don't know it's good that there's an energy there there's an that's energy, energy there. exactly that is energy which is what it boils down to it's impetus and you want to better yourself and i think 
shit like that like finds its way into the music you totally. know agreed or something like agreed. that anyway yeah. agreed well jamie yeah. thanks so much for for being up for this chat as you've got some brilliant stories we'll have to do a second one at some point oh i'd love to man yeah that flew by at a fantastic it did, time. didn't it <laughs> amazing yeah, man well thanks so much for yeah asking me questions and being interested yeah. in what i'm doing because uh, you know god knows i love to talk about myself it's all interesting man Any- it's all interesting the net you know the cover you know the, the the week sprawling out ahead of you i mean what are the what touch points have you got coming on soon as blue as indo indigo comes out on my bloody record label blame records it's gonna be massive. what's it like creating a record label how far have you got into distribution and syncing that shit i mean how far have you dug into that well luckily uh it, we plug into sony orchard so they're kind of like nice. our ba- babysitters so nice. you know i'm just like the grinning idiot who's like i've got a record <laughs> label but really i'm just like you know crying to them saying what what does right. this mean what's a vinyl record <laughs> who's that but it has it's quite stressful you know there's there's more responsibility and stuff like that but also you know it's uh i've wanted to have a record label for a long time because i think it's important to have your own autonomy and control in things and have the ability to mm. do shit no matter what. And I guess mm. blame is a, is a first step in doing that. And I'd love to just fucking pay it back one day and get some bands bankrolled that I like that I think are fucking cool that need a break. Go is 30 grand, go and do a fucking yeah. sick record. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And yeah, I'll totally. live on the streets if it doesn't work. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, it's rewarding. I imagine. I hope so. I hope so. It's it's at the start of that particular journey. Um yeah. so we'll we'll see how it pans out. But yeah, as Blue as Indigo comes out June eighteenth, go buy the fucking record. And then yes. we're going back in the studio doing an EP straight off the fucking back of it, because we've got songs that didn't make it on the record. We recorded fifteen tracks and the as Blue as Indigo sessions, whittled it down yeah. to ten. So we thought, fuck it, be succinct. And then Brilliant. we're going to put the rest out a little bit later in the year. And then we're going on tour of the UK in November and December everywhere. So, Perfect. yeah, that's going to be good. Yeah. Who are you making the Nancy record with in LA? Uh, it's a chap called Tom Biller. I don't know if you've heard of him. All right. No, he's, um, he's, done, he's done some wicked stuff, man. He did like um, some Elliot Smith, oh, um, yeah. Basement on a Hill, uh, Fiona Apple, he oh, did yeah. um, War Paint's first record. He's a fuck fucking yeah. dude, and we both listen to the same music. We both love like Beatles, T Rex, like Todd Rundgren and stuff. So we're just gonna and Roxy music. So it's gonna fucking go and make a banger of a glam rock record out there. Do you know what I mean? In Hollywood, yes, fucking bring it. If I'll make it into the country, of course. I don't end up in fucking Guantanamo Bay or something like that. Oh no, don't. Who knows? don't. <laughs> but Jamie, yeah. thank you so much, man. It's re- I really appreciate your time. Oh, Jazz, my pleasure, man. Thank you, dude. Fuck yeah. So there he is, Jamie Hall of Tiger Cub, as Blue as Indigo is out now. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Here's Cox Barrow. I've been working all day, I've been mate on the side, running around like a blue ass fly. I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day, for me mate. Every blink minute, I've been on the go. This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast.